I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. Today on the show, we have Claire Carroll. Now, Claire graduated university with a degree in psychology, and then she went on to spend 20 years in the advertising and sales industry. And this actually included 10 years as a sales leader at Google. But two years ago, she was offered a redundancy from Google, and this created this opportunity for her to embark on quite a new path for herself. So after some soul searching, she made the decision to become an executive coach and to start her own business. She now runs that business full-time, whilst also being the primary caregiver and breadwinner for two young kids who are aged six and four. And because Claire works with so many people going through career changes in her role as a coach, she has a unique perspective on some of the challenges that people face when they're trying to figure out what they want to do and how to make a change happen. As you've heard, she's also had a very impressive career herself. And so she's learned lots of lessons along her own journey. And we talk about loads of those in the podcast. So on this episode, you will hear about four things that hold people back from leaving their job. And more importantly, how you can get over them, how to use your friends to find your biggest strengths, what to do if you've recently been made redundant, what to do if your identity is closely tied to your job. I've been there. It's a tricky position. What life is actually like running a coaching business? What does Claire enjoy about it? And what does she think makes a good coach? This is helpful if you think that coaching might be something that you're interested in yourself. We talk about how Claire balances her career ambitions with also being the primary caregiver for two young kids and how Claire finds a sense of belonging and meaning in normality and some of the things that perhaps her younger self might have thought been a bit mundane and boring. This show is all about helping people to find out what they want to do in their life, to help people build a life that feels meaningful, one where they have a sense of purpose and satisfaction. And for anybody looking for these things, I think this conversation with Claire will be very, very helpful. If you want more content like this, helping you to find a job and a life that you love, go and follow me on socials. On Instagram, it's Two Roads Pod, and on LinkedIn, just get me on my personal account. I've had some little announcements there recently. I'm basically building something on top of the podcast that is going to help people who are going through this journey about trying to figure out what it is that they want to do. And following me on socials is going to be the best way for you to stay up to date with what I'm doing there. But for now, I hope you enjoy my chat with Claire Carroll. Let's get into it. So why don't people leave a job that they hate? There's a couple of different reasons. I think a big one is fear of the unknown. There can be a perverse comfort in the familiarity, even if that familiarity is slowly killing your soul. Um, that of the devil, you know, kind of thing. Or if you merely have a niggle of dissatisfaction. <laughs> you did say hate though. Um, it, you know, people can't, can't picture what else they might do or have lost sight of what transferable skills that they have that would work well in another workplace. Um, sometimes we're so, sometimes we don't have clarity of what our strengths and our skills are because we've been doing it for so long and it's so automated and comes so naturally that we think that everyone thinks this way or acts this way or does these kinds of things. Um, 
So people can often reel off the things that they feel they're not good at or they see in others and they wish, I wish I was as good as that guy at doing X, Y, Z or that woman doing X, Y, Z. Um, but we can find it difficult to articulate what we're good at. And culturally, certainly in Ireland and some other countries, we're not raised or encouraged to go around shouting about our successes and our strengths and what we're great at. Whereas in other cultures, they are naming no countries in particular. Um, I think another really valid reason is financial pressures. People are afraid that they're not going to be earning the same level that they're earning right now. And they've got commitments depending on what stage of life or how they live their life. I mean, one to jump straight into solutions, one quick fix of that is do do your household budget. <laughs> you know, you might find, woohoo, we're all going to the Maldives. <laughs> or you might find you know, really need to stop buying coffee in the croissant every day. But you know, it's it's that kind of concept of information can empower you. And I think a final one that I hear a lot from my clients certainly is the what will other people think? You know, if I'm no longer a digital marketing person, accountant, Googler, as I was once, what am I? Um, what are people going to think? I'm giving up a good, stable job with a lot of perks and benefits, or it's something that my family understands. It's an actual an actual job, like an accountant or a teacher or a fireman. What are, what are other people going to think? And I mean, I went through that myself when I was leaving different jobs. And uh, it took a while to get my mind around it. There's really only four or five people that actually really, really matter and really, um, you know, whose opinions really matter. And I realized I was obsessed with people that I might have worked with in the past who I mightn't have gotten on well with or didn't work well with. And I was focusing on what they would think. Who does Claire think she is? She was a rubbish manager. She'd never be a good coach. She'd never give me any feedback. Uh, that inner critical voice might have been partly truth. I've managed over 100 people, I'd say, in my time. I didn't do a great job on all 100 people. But, you know, I did a great job on some of them and I did a good job on nearly everyone. Why was I worrying about the minority? I think they're like all reasons that I would hear a lot from people as well, right? Well, it's kind of like four different reasons there, right? So it's like, Fear of the unknown, people don't know their strengths. These like very real like financial constraints. Um, and then also this like real worry about like what would somebody think of me if I'm, you know, not a Googler or if I'm not a doctor or a McKinsey consultant or whatever it is um anymore. And like maybe we could almost kind of go through each of those four, right? And talk about like some of the things that you've already mentioned, some of the things that people can do to get over them. But I'm interested actually to start at the end. Because you said you went, you've gone through this journey of, at one point, been really worried about what all these people who maybe you didn't even care about that much or weren't that close to you, you worried about what they would think if you were doing something differently. But then, like, what was it that got you to the far side of it where you realized, actually, do you know what? There's only really four or five people that matter and the rest of them sure feck them. If they don't like what I'm doing, then who cares? Like, how, how do you go through that transition? Because it seems like a hard thing to actually do. At some point, I realized I was making an assumption that I was putting thoughts in this imagined person or people's heads. Um, and I was definitely realized that uh, they might think that for five minutes, but they're not going around spending their lives thinking about what's Claire Carroll doing with her career. Like, they're really not. Uh, and even if they thought 
who the hell does she think she is? She was rubbish. So what? So what? Not everyone's going to like me. Not everyone's going to back me. Not everyone's going to rate me. But most do, or a lot do, or the people that matter do, or people that I respect do. So lean into those opinions and those people. You know, it's never going to be perfect. I'm never going to be perfect. That's okay. I have enough. It's a good point. Like, I think I saw that articulated before is like the spotlight effect. So it's like you feel like you're under the spotlight, that everyone's watching you and thinking about you. Whereas like the reality is like people just don't think about you that much. <laughs> they don't really care about you that much. Because you think about it, how much do you think about them? right and what they're doing with their life and their decisions like realistically very very rarely and then so if we switch to maybe one of the other ones so on the strength side of things i think that's something i'm quite interested in because i read this really interesting research which is where that one of kind of the best predictors of like your happiness is in a job is like how well it aligns with your strengths like are you doing stuff that you've you're actually good at are there naturally your things that you've developed at because if you are, then you kind of find yourself in a flow state more often. Um, but as you said, a lot of people are really bad at understanding their strengths. And I think a lot of that comes from that fact that if we're good at something, it seems easy. And something that seems easy to us, uh, we're like, well, sure, everyone can do that. Like, what's so special about this? Why is that a strength? But what can people do to figure out what they actually are good at? So I'll tell you a funny story. Um one thing you can do is ask your friends, like ask your good, trusted friends. So what do we know? Maybe about two years ago, I was away for a night with a couple of good girlfriends. Now I did psychology in college. So a lot of my close friends are psychologists, which is a great bunch of friends to have because they're highly intelligent and very articulate, genuinely, genuinely, and have really, really good questions and really good ways of viewing the world and are very good people skills. And, uh, I'm single. I was single at the time. And I was like, I choose, I need to get back on the horse here and get onto the online dating and please help me write a profile. It's the most mortifying thing that I could ever try and do this stage of my life. They're like, yeah, go on and problem. Check it out there. And they're like, oh, great. Right. Let's talk about all the things that are good about Claire. And one of the girls said, you're so great at seeing the best in people. And everyone, it was maybe four or five of us, everyone just agreed. Okay. Yeah. You're like, you're always, you know, spotting what people are good at and you're really good at articulating what that is and you're really champion people like you're really encouraging you're very curious like you're like you're really really genuinely curious about people and uh I was kind of laughing I was like that's not a thing like being interested in people and spotting the best in people that's not a thing and they're like yeah it is it's it really defines you you're a champion <laughs> as in you champion people they were so what's the word, effusive about it and so in agreement and so taken aback that I didn't realise that this is the thing that is basically in my DNA. Um, I, I kind of wondered, like, what what other blind spots do I have or what other strengths do I have? Or, yeah, it just, I don't know, it was funny. It kind of struck me. So then, like, b- being a coach, like, part of that is spotting people's blind spots or helping them come across their blind spots through what they're telling you, like the patterns of behavior, the moments that they're talking about in work or the things that they um, tend to not fixate on. What's the word I'm trying to look for? Uh, focus on. Um, and it made me realize like it is what 
made me a good people manager when I was a people manager. Uh, And I hope it's the thing that makes me a good parent because I'm a parent, you know, spotting the good in other people and leaning into that and going with it. Um, But uh, so I think if people want to find, like, figure out what their strengths are, asking close friends and family, like, what do I stand for? Like, what, what three words would you use to describe me? Or even sending an email to former managers or former colleagues, be they more senior or more junior than you were, that if you had just had a trusted relationship with them and ask them what they think. If you send out that email or ask that question to 10 to 15 people, you'll see the patterns coming back. And there will be patterns and there will be common themes. Um, And I think that's a really nice way to do it. You can do the online tests and the quizzes and the Myers-Briggs and all this kind of things on. That's great. Um, But there's something really, I felt really helped me internalize what I was good at because it came from a trusted source and it was so personal. And so uh, there was so an agreement. That's such a good point. It is not just a bad kind of, if you get something from a quiz, it's like, oh, you're good at this. It's like, okay, maybe. But unless you internalize it and actually act on that information, then it's kind of useless to you. So it's not just about like the quality of the information or like the quality of the source, I guess. It's also like how much you trust it and are you willing to act on it as well, which is, you know, what you get, I guess, from talking to like friends and people who are close to you. Like then that helps if, if self-doubt rears its ugly head <laughs> and you're kind of going, yeah, well, people are telling me that I'm good at this, but I don't believe it. It's like the evidence is right there in front of you from trusted sources. Just believe it. It's actually disrespectful not to believe it. And you know, you were having that conversation with your friends and you were like, this isn't a thing. Do you mean like, this isn't a, you know, work skill that I could actually translate into something that I do for a living? Or were you like, this is something that just everybody does. So like, I can't be good at it. This is just a natural thing in every human. What did you kind of mean by, by that? Okay, hold up one second. I'm sorry to have to interrupt this episode, but I do want to remind you that if you want more content on how to find a job and a life that you love, you can find it on our socials. So on Instagram, go to Two Roads Pod, and on LinkedIn, just find my personal account called Steve Duke. And of course, these podcasts I release weekly where I interview people and that's extremely helpful for people to get inspiration and hear other people's stories and what how they did it and what they're going through. But I also release a ton of other content as well to help you both figure out what it is that you want to do and also how to then make that actually happen. So LinkedIn and Instagram and LinkedIn, Steve Duke, just my name. And then on Instagram, you can find us at two roads pod. Yeah, I suppose that's that second thing. I was like, isn't that something that everyone does? Like every nice person or every decent human being. And they're like, no, not really. I think you're particularly good at it. Like just particular, it's just particularly ingrained in you. There was an online dating context. It's like, yeah, great. Also great. I'm going to translate that into a bloody <laughs> line on a profile. It did make me think about like skills or strengths that are so deeply ingrained that you think everyone thinks like you or is like you. And then if we talk about the other two that we were talking about in terms of like barriers to so why people don't, you know, leave a job that they hate or maybe even just mildly don't like. And um, the other two are kind of around 
not being able to um, articulate like our achievements or our experiences very well. Um, and then also the second one kind of being on like the very real like financial considerations of like, well, I can't just leave my job because I have bills to pay or I have kids or whatever else it is. I can't just kind of walk away from this salary. But, you know, we do know that it probably is better for that person if they're in a job they hate to get out of there at some point right now. They don't have to ditch it tomorrow and put all this stress on themselves. But you know, they're going to spend a lot of their time of their life working. So they probably should try and end up in a job that they do like. So if you've got these two barriers, um, is there anything that you kind of have found works to get people over those two or to kind of create a plan to move past those two so that they can get into a job that they do like? I think when I know a client well enough, like you either know them from before or you're a few sessions in and they're comfortable, you can get into a conversation around like what does money mean to you what values does it represent in your life but for some people it's very much about security and it could be about what type of background they came from like did they come from a very comfortable household or a household that was lacking in finances and it was you know a struggle to make ends meet and what does it represent do people want to create wealth or does someone just want to have enough or do they feel they should want to create wealth because they're living in a neighborhood and in a community where that's the thing? Or are they living in a community and from a family that's like, no, you know, enough is enough and hobbies, interests, spending time with people, having a simple life, you know, being a good citizen, that's more important than buying a second property and a third property and having investments and sending kids to private school or whatever it is. And there's no right or wrong, right? There is no right or wrong here. But I think it's really valuable to intentionally look at that. Like, um, what does money mean to you? What does it enable you to do? And what's the opportunity cost? Because generally, if you're earning a high salary, you're investing a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of mental energy into earning that. And that's time and energy and uh, being present <laughs> that you're not spending elsewhere maybe sometimes in life there comes a point of diminishing returns where you're earning very decent money for example or you start off normal and then you start earning a very decent amount of money and that enables you to get a mortgage buy a nice car <laughs> get the whatever the things that you want and sustain but to sustain that you don't need to earn that amount of money anymore it's or it's taking too much of a toll I remember I was in, sorry, I was at a point when I got like my first, so it was in my first job. And I remember like I had my salary, which, you know, coming from being in university, I thought was like insane. I was like, I can't believe I actually just like get paid every month like, just for showing up. And I remember I had like this number in my head and I was like, if I re if I ever got a salary of this number after that, I wouldn't need any more money. I would just trade it for time. So I would just want to get the same salary, but do less work every week and open up, you know, time for me to do other things. And um, a few years later, I hit that salary and I ended up just working more than ever. And then I exceeded that salary and ended up working more than that. And um, so like my plan didn't work out at all. Like I really fell into this trap of just like working more and more and more because like you always so natural just to want more and try and like push the push the envelope i think it's like hard to get out i find it hard to get out of that like 
to hard to get out of like just wanting the next promotion or you know earning a bit more cash whatever do you find people like fall fall into that absolutely unfortunately until it reaches burnout or almost burnout stage or unless there's another like external factor like there's a redundancy or a layoff you know or a restructure that you're affected by and you're suddenly demoted or not given an option um and shown the door and now you know you're given a check and that depending on what industry and how long and what company and position and everything that check can be small medium or large or unfortunately a tragedy you know some sort of tragedy befalls someone and they're suddenly really taking stock of what matters and where they're spending their time so a, a big traumatic event with either with a small t or a big t can make people think differently which is unfortunate that I can get that far but I, I think there's a lot around the influences that are around you and the norms that are around you I find that like having you know I moved to Australia like four years ago and Australia has a very different approach to kind of working and life in general I think whereas like previously I was working in Dublin which I would say is kind of like actually a decent balance but depends kind of like what circles you're in um but i spent a lot of time in london which i would have said would have very kind of work focused ethos especially like in the industry i was in which is in management consulting so like people value their work a lot and like that's kind of where they want to spend their time and where they derive kind of like their sense of identity from and their value from and um, but then moving to australia i'm suddenly in this place where like actually that's not the influences around me like a lot of the people around me want to knock off work early because they want to go for a surf or like after lunch on a Friday, honestly, like you, it's very hard to get a meeting with anybody. Cause they're like, no, no, like I'm out of here. I'm going away for the weekend. I'm going to the beach. Like I've got other things to do. And then like over time that seeps into your own decision-making as well. And like what you value because it's like, well, if everybody else around me here is doing this kind of thing, it kind of like gives you permission to do that kind of thing as well. And so like your environment is like such a big role to play. And I guess it can be like two sides of it. One is like it can influence you in potentially a negative way if it's like things that you don't actually want for yourself, but everybody around you wants them or is doing them. So like you end up falling into, oh shit, but like I better do this. Or the positive way is like it can give you permission to do the things that you actually wanted to do anyway. Like, you know, knock off early on a Friday and go for a surf because everybody else is doing it you're like well that's fine I can go and do it now too you mentioned about redundancies so obviously you know the last kind of what year 18 months has been a lot of different redundancies especially in the tech sector I don't know if you've kind of worked with people who've kind of gone through that process but do you have any kind of advice for people who might have gone through like a redundancy recently because I know it's a pretty tough time for people yeah, yeah. So I do. I have worked and do work with a number of people who've been hit by layoffs, unfortunately. I think first I'd say feels rubbish because it is rubbish. Like it's it's rubbish. You know, um, often people have been working for a number of years at these companies. They're in seen like middle senior positions. They've contributed a lot. They've gotten great feedback along the way. They've done good work. They're proud of the stuff that they've done. They've built up a great network. You can be left wondering, like, why why me? Why is my name on the list? Why not Paddy or Johnny or Mary? And it's natural, I think, or common to feel a little bit victimized or feel that it is personal, even though 
And again, I'm talking about layoffs specifically in the corporate world and the tech sector and, and, and similar, not say a, a factory or something, which is quite different. It's difficult not to take it personally and to, even though, you know, it's a corporation that's bottom line is make more bottom line and make more revenue. And maybe it's been like an Accenture, it's been a decision to outsource jobs to other countries. So like here in Ireland, there's around 900 people impacted by layoffs. And I know a big chunk of those people are being asked to interview for their roles in other countries and then onboard those people. I mean, that's a hell of a a smack in the face. So there's definitely an emotional roller coaster. Now, there is 100% a silver lining to it as well. And I think that can come down to how you're feeling about your job and your career and that company at that moment in time. Some people will say, I was thinking of leaving anyway and not too happy about this, not too happy about that. Or I was meant to go to Australia, but COVID happened. Or I've just started a family and actually I'd love more time with them. And I've got a check now that's going to cover me for six months or a year or two years or depending on what kind of check that you're getting. And that's going to enable time with family. And some people are very comfortable, which I love hearing, taking time off and taking advantage and viewing it like they've just won the lotto and taking time off. Now, a lot of people get edgy. And again, it's back to that fear of the unknown, what's going to happen. And, you know, if they said that if someone could guarantee them that they'd be working in six months time or they'd be working in a year's time at X salary and they could have that peace of mind and, you know, earning as much or similar or a little bit less if they're, you know, willing to compromise on certain things to gain other things. I think what's positive is the the shame and the taboo that surrounds that surrounded redundancy in the past isn't there anymore. So LinkedIn was full of people saying I've been one of the ones affected in Meta, in Google, in Accenture. People are being very open about it. People are like, you know, asking the network to help find other roles. And I know when I chat to people in and around the community, even say schoolgate mums or dads that I wouldn't have known as well and chatted about it, people say, oh, yeah, I, was, yeah, I worked at a bank and I was made redundant. At one point, yeah, God is absolutely shit. Um, but actually, we got a deposit for the house, and so now we live in a four bed house, not a three bed or a five bed house, not a three bed. Do you know? And have a new car. Like, you know that the emotional roller coaster is absolutely crap, but that there is a silver lining, and that that check can fund and enable you to do things you wouldn't otherwise have done. And I guess in my case, it enabled me to set up a business that I really don't think I would have had the courage to do otherwise. Will we talk about that then? I kind of want to talk about like your, well, that kind of transition for you, like out of Google and then like making, like setting up the business and a bit around like what you do now, because I think it's super interesting. So maybe can you tell me a bit about what that journey was like for you towards kind of the end of your time at Google and then kind of like transitioning into this uh, decision to like set up your own business? My situation was slightly different. It wasn't part of the waves of tech redundancies that are happening this year. Um, I think it was two years ago and there was just a restructure in the organization that I work in and a smaller number of people were affected and it depended on the specific role that you were doing and whether you were senior enough for what the business wanted to do I wasn't so some people were given options sorry I was given an option as well to move into another role um, or to take a redundancy and that role was a demotion and not a role that I would have excelled in and I was pissed off <laughs> and freaked and didn't want to take it. But still, I really struggled with that decision. 
really struggled and was down to an identity crisis. Like if I don't work in Google, what do I do? Um, and I think as well, it had come a, a year previously. I had actually, it had been a very difficult year for me personally. I had split up with my partner a year previously and I had a two-year-old and a four-year-old at home. So I was like, right, universe, <laughs> what else is going to lay on me here? You know, again, down to my wonderful bunch of friends they're like right so what you really really need is time and space and you're telling me that google are going to pay for you to have time and space what what's the struggle over the decision what is the decision there is no decision here and still i was like yeah that that's 100 percent true i still don't believe it and it was just as yeah it was the status or the job or the gloss or the i don't know it's ridiculous and i started working with an executive coach myself and feel it was only really when I remember like for the first session you're often just venting like everyone says to me oh I feel I'm rambling I'm going around in circles I'm just venting here now it's not you know that's what a first session in coaching is and afterwards she sent me a poem a beautiful poem about standing on the shore and watching the ship and the ship is trying to get your attention and there's horns and bugles and music but you don't notice and then next thing the ship is sailing away and as you watch it sail away you realize you've always loved the sea and I literally burst into tears after it was just a moment in time. And I was like, yeah, obviously I should take the money and run. And I've read the poem since and I haven't had that same physiological reaction. A big aha moment. I'm like, yeah, that's quite a nice poem. I get that. But it just really, really spoke to me at the time. And that was grand. Um, I then immediately recontracted myself back to Google because I got the fear. And I did a maternity leave cover. But in less in a non-sales role. So pressure was slightly off and actually a really interesting experience of contracting. I was very single-mindedly focused on what the most important priorities were for my job to deliver and what my manager's priorities were and her bosses and stuck very rigidly and strictly to that because I was still wrecked. I was still a primary caregiver and breadwinner of two young kids at home kids who don't sleep during the night and um, like I was at lunchtime I'd take half my lunchtime to go and working from home mainly I'd um, take a nap nearly every lunchtime I'd sleep for 20 minutes or 40 minutes and that's got, what got me through the day I was still kind of survival mode on a lot of days but I actually really liked the contract work and I would definitely do contract work again I just liked really focusing on the things that mattered and cutting right through the noise and the, the stuff that's nice to do or that I'd be good at doing so then I also felt that that enabled me to leave Google with what I perceived as my head held high. <laughs> like I was choosing to leave. I had a really good experience in that last role. I got my work mojo back because the previous year hadn't been good. Just my personal life was such a mess. It was apologies again to certain people that I worked with during that year. I was tough. <laughs> it was tough. And I just was back to back to me, back to old Clara, back to being good at my job and delivering and feeling good about myself so I was delighted to leave on a really good note got a lovely send-off from both teams to be fair really lovely send-off um then I decided very deliberately to take six months off and do very little it was summer it was like May I think I left and uh honestly for a lot of June the kids were in childcare and um I kept them in childcare and I watched telly I watched a lot of America's Got Talent and Britain's Got Talent and snoozed tidy dyke cupboards and cried rivers over talented children with traumatic backstories who were trying to make it on stage and wishing that I could be on stage one day singing like them 
like genuinely I was so tired it's you know when you're working yourself up to a holiday and you get there and you're wrecked on the first day I just felt like I had two years of sleep <laughs> to get through I'm into cycling so I got a lovely new bike I spent a bit of money got two new bikes actually got back into cycling uh did some strength training like definitely the exercise and the like I'm 43 now, so I was like, right, I really need to get into strength training in your 40s is what you're told, osteoporosis, prevention, all this stuff. So I did um, one-to-one personal training, which I'd never done, which is great. So now I understand weights and I'm no longer intimidated by them. Did a few weekend trips, caught up with friends that I hadn't seen in ages, coffees, just super, super simple stuff that I'm putting on the long finger and really didn't stress that much about finding a job. Now, in, sorry, in the meantime, before I left, I'd started doing a coaching course because I knew from my maternity leaves that I just needed something to keep my brain ticking over. I found Matt leave the two of them. They were long. So I was very lucky. I had a year long and both of them longer in the second one. The COVID and the breakup. But I needed I need intellectual stimulation or I start going stir crazy. And I thought I have a degree in psychology. I loved managing people um, and coaching. And I like business. And I'm interested in the kind of startup world. And coaching was just a really good blend of business and psychology. And I thought, look, it's a good skill if I end up being a manager somewhere else, sure, I have 20 more years to work. This is going to stand to me. And then I kind of started thinking, well, maybe I'll give it a crack. Maybe I'll set up a practice, see if I can get a few clients. I've got a good network. And if the worst comes to the worst and it doesn't work out, it'll make a great interview story for when I'm interviewing to get into the big, bad corporate world. Probably making the decision to like go public, right, to launch this new um, business, right, where you're providing executive coaching. Um, were you at the point at that point where you were like, oh, I'm, this is what I want to do. I don't really care what people think anymore. Like, let's just go for it. Or did you still have kind of reservations in your mind or any like voices in your head that were like, Jesus, Claire, like, you know, don't do this. Or what might people think? Were any of those voices in your mind when you launched it? Both, like a hundred percent both. It was crazy. It was like, yeah, a good angel, bad angel tormented me. But I really, like, I've never read the book, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway, but it's a mantra I often tell myself. Like, what's the worst? Like, honestly, what's the worst case scenario and can I handle that? And the worst case scenario was, it doesn't work. And, but that's not public. I mean, you can spin any story on LinkedIn. It's bloody more toxic positivity on there than Instagram. Do you know? And you can tell anyone any story. You can, you can script a lovely two-sentence summary keep it vague, keep it bright and breezy, all about your tone of voice. And I could spin any story, I told myself, if it didn't work out. And also not working out. If it's my own business, I decide what success looks like. Like success could be one client a month and earning 5p. <laughs> or, you know, success could be doing one LinkedIn post a week or success can be anything that I want it to be. So if people are asking, oh, how's the business going? Well, then if I decide that... <laughs> You know, I, I decide if it's going well or not. You don't have to share everything with everyone. And like, it's like when people ask you, how are you? They don't actually care how you are. It's, you're just socially conditioned to say that. Some people say, oh, how's business? It's perfectly, even if it's not going well or if I'm having a bad week, I don't need to tell everyone that I meet, oh, not going well. Like there, of course, there are some people that I trust or other business owners around or I'm like, oh, I'm getting impatient about this or this is going slower than I want or I'm a bit freaked about this. But uh, kind of treating, I suppose, information as a valuable resource that not everyone gets access to it. 
there's something interesting that I'm picking up when you're talking about like both contracting and running your own business where there's something fundamentally different about it to being an employee, right? Just in terms of like how it feels. And this has been my experience, like only really for the last six months when I've been doing a bit of contracting and running my own thing. There's something that feels very, very different about it. Where I actually feel a lot less stress and pressure than I did when I was like a full-time employee. And that was not what I would have expected. I thought would like having to go out and do my own thing would be feel a lot more pressurized. But there's something about that ability to be very clear on what success is for you. So you define success for yourself, like you said. Also within contracting, because I think because you've maybe that little bit more distance between you and your employer, you're kind of able to say, no, I'm not doing that. Like that's that's not really a priority, right? Why don't we just do this instead? You're not trying to like impress them to get a promotion at the end of the year. And so you have this little bit more distance, which allows you to push back on stuff, have a bit more control. And I found like, it just feels so much nicer, like so much nicer. Was that like your experience as well? Yeah, I find it very freeing and kind of a bit empowering and just that not getting sucked into the noise and getting sucked into the stuff that doesn't actually matter, but is nice to do or fun to do or you're good at it. So you're always the one who's asked to do it. Like I remember telling some colleagues, I think by the end when I left Google, I had something like 16,000 unread emails in my inbox. Now, there was two years of maternity leave in there, right? And there's a lot of emails in that company. Also, there's so many emails that I don't that I don't read deliberately. And I remember some of my colleagues being really shocked. I'd say I clapped up a good good view in that last role because it just, you look at the subject or I'd skim it and then I'd click it as unread again, you know, and click it into for reading later when I've some time. That'd stress me out, mate. There's no, there was no repercussion. There was no negative outcome. I was just CC'd on it or I was on a group alias. So I didn't worry about that. And then, yeah, your point on the not being worried about getting promoted that was definitely, I think, a big relief for me. Like I didn't want to get promoted. I wasn't going to get promoted. There was a time limit on what I was doing. So all the extra projects that you take on because you think that's what's needed to demonstrate leadership and collaboration and, 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 and. strategic thinking, being a thought leader in the space, you don't need to bother with all that crap. If we fast forward a little bit from you're, you're no longer at Google, like you set up this business, providing executive coaching to people, like fast forward a bit to kind of you know, the business is up and running. I'm really interested to hear like, what does that look like for you now on a day-to-day basis? Because sometimes people hear, oh, so-and-so started their own business and you're like, oh, that's great. But I have no idea like how they spend their time. Are they working 80-hour weeks, 20-hour weeks? Like what's kind of their priorities how are like what are they actually doing each day because i think that's what people need to figure out oh is this something that i would actually like to do with my life or not and so how do you kind of paint that picture of like what it looks like for you now i try to do a 30 hour week i just want to have some time for myself and time for the kids i will start usually at half nine and fin- try to finish by four or half four and then i do shorter days on a thursday and friday because i want to pick up my older son from school when he's back in school he loves mommy picking him up from school (laughs) now I do find myself sometimes which I didn't want to do but I do find myself sometimes in the evening jumping back on and doing a bit of email or doing a LinkedIn post I get a lot of clients through LinkedIn or doing filling out some form or something or other which I don't really want to do 
and I feel prevents me from like logging off at four or half four and then forgetting about it till the next morning. Um, I would see, say kind of max kind of 10 probably clients a week. So I don't like, I would never do it back to back client meetings. Um, I like to leave a bit of space for them to spill over if they can. Sometimes it can be a bit heavy. You never know what people can bring to a session. Now, it's not therapy, right? But people, it is a safe space for people to talk about things that are very meaningful to them. And I'm listening and listening is tiring as anyone who's done a course uh, or an online course in particular knows. And then in between that, I suppose there's working in the business and working on the business, right? So working in the business is doing client work. So I prepare in advance. I read back on previous notes, look back on what we've discussed in, in other sessions, what their goal is, and then think about what might come up and how I might structure that kind of conversation or those questions if it does. And then after the session, I do some reflection. So reflection on what came up in the session and kind of my coaching techniques and what I might do differently next time. And then I suppose working on the business is figuring out what one, it's lead gen, right? So where are my, where are my next set of clients going to come from? And then also exploring other partnerships or other things that I could do. So at the moment, I'm doing a lot of private one-to-one coaching. I'd love to get into doing some group coaching or partner with another organization to do coaching or training. I like teaching. I really like teaching. I like telling people what to do in coaching. You don't tell people what to do. It's the opposite of it. It's non-directive. So I need to scratch that itch of teaching and telling. So yeah, I think I it was meant to be my H2 plan and it's nearly the end of August now and I haven't haven't got the finger out enough on the training element. And then like this invoicing, there's tax, there's all that kind of stuff. That's one thing I found is like there's an annoying like administrative burden you used to have people to do all these things right <laughs> like they, i don't know it just kind of happened like in a big business they just happened there's whole departments who are responsible for these kind of things and then when you're doing your own thing you realize like i am now the department for everything so all of those little things i now have to figure out whether it's getting paid or managing the website or lead gen or tax or all that sort of crap yeah, for sure. Like I'm definitely missing having colleagues and missing having a sounding board, like the crack as well. But like having it's just someone to bounce all the all the ideas off. I get a bit of decision fatigue and then I end up not doing anything about it. And then that really annoys me because I know it's a good idea, but I'm just not sure like what way to go about it or need a bit of reassurance or something. Yeah, I suppose getting out and about a bit. So I do a lot of online work, but I do some walk and talk as well, which I really enjoy. And it's always good to be out in nature. Like you're walking by the sea, you're walking in a park, you're shoulder to shoulder. You know, people can open up a bit more. Everyone feels good after some fresh air and a nice walk. Yeah. Oh, so this is where, where you actually bring, like you and the client meet up in person and you go for like a walk somewhere. You know, that's kind of cool. You kind of mentioned like not having a sounding board. That's like something I struggle with a bit. I think especially if you're kind of the type of problem solver or thinker who needs to speak out loud or collaborate with people to be able to get stuff out of your head or to get to like clarity on a decision. I think also that one of the challenges is like you said, just missing the crack with having like some colleagues, right? So even if it's not work related, that if you're just at your desk, you can just have a chat with somebody or have a chat with people at lunch. Whereas like if you're working from home on your own and you're on your own business, like it can be quite isolating. Is that something that you you find at all or because you're at actual business is working with loads of people coaching them you're actually very happy to have some alone time i think it depends on the week and what i have gone on outside of work like some weeks that i do feel a bit isolated 
Which is stupid, right? Because I live in a really nice neighborhood and a lot of people around are working from home. And I'm like, sure, those people around here are feeling like that. Like, why don't I just text whoever and go, let's go for lunch on Friday. I'll bring my sandwich to yours. So that's definitely all within my power to change if I'm feeling a bit isolated. And the other thing, I have several emails in my inbox unread. My new inbox that I do try to keep cleaner um, on shared co-working spaces. So I think I will do a day or two from one of those other one there's one locally here and there's one in town that I'll probably go for I think it's good right when you're around other businesses you get a bit, bit of inspiration or you know you just hear how other people are doing things and I think the level of vision and ambition and like I love that energy from entrepreneurs who are just want to take over the world with their really niche product or idea and they've got such self-belief in it it's like yeah I could I could do it absorbing a bit of that sometimes Say there was somebody listening to this conversation and going, do you know what? A lot of that resonates with me. I think I'd, I really enjoy managing people, really enjoy kind of finding people's strengths and helping them. Maybe I'd like to be a coach, right? What would you say to them to kind of help them figure out whether that is something that they would actually like to do? Yeah, well, I'd say same as, so a lot of the coaching that I do is career, career coaching. People find themselves at a career crossroads and they're trying to figure out what the next step is. So it could be anything from a redundancy situation that they suddenly find themselves in to a niggle of dissatisfaction to a real, I can't, I can't go back to that office on Monday um, and anything in between. So I would start with um, asking the basics, like what energizes you? In a day's work, when in your current role, when you shut down the laptop or walk out the door of the office or your spare bedroom, what's energized you? You've it's it's been a great day. What are those things? And similarly, what drains your energy? And I'd be looking for things that align with whatever career that they think that they're going to go into. And if I'm not hearing things that I think would be helpful for that career, then I'd be kind of gently probing into that. You know, asking, do you think there's anything else missing? Or do you know anyone in this area, you know, who's doing it well? What kind of qualities and skills do they have? Probably be doing one of the exercises and tests around skills and strengths. And what you'd want to be seeing come here is the people side coming out strong there. You know, listening, empathy, communication. And then I think same with any, like if you're going to set up a business where you're one person doing everything, there's that ability to do the skill be it a beautician or a hairdresser or a coach or a consultant of some sort, you can do the thing. But what about running a business? Like, have you ever run a business? Do you know about sales? Do you know about marketing? Do you know about setting up a website? Do you know about doing revenue projections? Um, Have you got a financial cushion? How are you going to keep yourself motivated? Do you have the qualifications? What are the qualifications in the area? What are the CPD requirements? All that kind of thing. So there's a real kind of practical, pragmatic piece to it too. And I think that's what I I hear that when I was doing my coaching course, you're learning the skills. How do you actually set up a coaching practice in a business? And there's a lot of talk around that can be a big downfall and that can really make people very demotivated. And I think luckily for me that I've worked in advertising and digital marketing for 20 years until I came to this now. I'm not saying my digital marketing is amazing, but at least I know sales and I know marketing and I know about customers and that kind of thing. So that's been very helpful in setting this business up and it's a viable business and it's, you know, it's certainly keeping me afloat. And those are like really 
good things, I think, to be aware of because you said there's so much more to having a business than just doing the thing. You have to do all of these ancillary things as well to actually have a successful business. But I think people, some people might listen to that and go, oh, Jesus, like I'm, I'm a great beautician, but I don't know any of that other stuff. Is the answer for them, well, look, maybe then the best path for you is to you know, continue to be a beautician, but like do it within a situation where you don't have to run the other stuff, right? Like you can work in somebody else's business. Or if they say, well, maybe I'd like to have my own thing. How can they go around kind of like building those skills if they don't have the experience already? Like, do you think it's something where they can go, well, look, I need to learn A, B, and C to be able to run my own business. And like, this is how I can go and do it. Well, I think everyone who's run a business has learned how to do it at some point. Like you don't learn that at your mommy or daddy's knee. So yes, it definitely it can be learned. That requires time and patience and investment and energy and frustration and maybe it's stuff like that you don't like doing but again what is putting that effort in what is it enabling to do you to do is it enabling you to be autonomous and be your own boss and run your own schedule and have time for your hobbies and interests and family and whatever else you have going on outside of work so is it worth it like what are the trade-offs and what are the values that you will be kind of honoring or allowing to flourish by doing it? And what are the ones that you will be kind of denying if you stay in your normal nine to five job that you're a bit dissatisfied in? So you can be learned. And like very pragmatically in Ireland, the local enterprise offices are fantastic. There's a lot of support, a lot of support for setting up your own business, great networking, great mentoring, great low cost courses by really qualified experts who've been in their particular niche for a long time something i was talking about on a recent podcast was this kind of concept of like choosing your suffering and which sounds a bit extreme but basically a lot of times when we think about like different jobs or whatever we look at the good things that we want from them and say well like i would love that job because it has a great salary or because it gives me a lot of autonomy but another way to look at it is that choose what you're going to be willing to put up with choose your suffering because every job is going to have something shit about it and if you have to run your own business do you know what you're going to have to do tax or accounting or whatever else it is and you might hate it but is that the thing that you're willing to do is that kind of the the bad thing that you're willing to put up with versus another job where what you might have to put up with is you know doing something that you fundamentally hate or you know, having to work with people that you just don't get on with. And it's like, everybody has like different tolerance for like what they're willing to put up with. Some people are very happy to go to work and work with people that they don't get on with. Not me. Like that's be like the number one thing for me, I would say. But like for some people, it's absolutely fine. They don't care. And it's just not a big thing for them. So it's kind of an interesting lens, I think, sometimes to look at things as like, what are you willing to put up with rather than just looking at what are you trying to get out of the job from a positive sense of things? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes the thoughts of things are much worse than the thing itself. Like, I hate doing VAT returns. When I sit down and do it, it takes me half an hour. It literally takes me half an hour. Like, it's so simple. I hate doing it. And I will crucify myself for weeks in advance of the deadline. Going, oh, geez, I'm going to have to do that in two weeks. I know, God, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's, it's, and it's stupid, right? So um, next time it comes around, <laughs> I'm not going to do that to myself. You know, because there's no point. I'm just sucking up time and energy. 
Or there's always processes or there's automated or there's an AI that you can find that's going to do it for you, right? Moving on about return. But um, I actually, I think, well, I do think AI is going to change the business landscape hugely for like one person companies or small companies. It is already. I mean, it, I don't know if it is for you, but it certainly is for me. And like funny, when we were talking about having a sounding board earlier on, yes, it's not a human, but ChatGPT or Bard or insert whoever. I'm chatting to them all the time. <laughs> for weird, not, not weird things, but you know what I mean? Like for little things exactly like this, you know, where I'd be like kind of stuck on this problem. Like, here, what do you think of this? Like, do you think I should do A or B? Like, it's it's kind of strange, some of the conversations you end up having with them. Are there other ways that you're finding it kind of like impact your business? Definitely marketing. Like if you're writing, writing a piece, writing a post or writing an email, just getting it to tidy it up. For you, like doing a bit of editing, like improving the website content. Um, I'm actually doing a course soon enough, AI for marketeers, which I'm really looking forward to. Someone had gone to me, they were doing an interview in an industry that I'm not familiar with. Had the job description, so I just popped it in to figure out what type of interview questions could come up. And we used that when we were doing interview practice. It's funny all these like little use cases that are popping up, like somebody, so with the podcast, one of the things that I would do a lot is I create clips from it. Um, And like, that's pretty time consuming thing to do. And like, there's tools that help. And then yesterday, my brother sent me one and he was like, hey, you just can give this thing a YouTube link, give it some keywords around the topics that you want it to spit out. And it will just like, like, it gives you the finished product. It's just like, here's a 30 second clip, edited, captioned, absolutely everything ready to go. I'm like, oh my God, like that was like half a day's work beforehand. Like it's, that's crazy. Um, and another one, I haven't done it yet. I did it just once where I was the client and uh, there's another coach that I found who's based in the UK. We kind of meet up once a month to just peer-to-peer support. Um, and uh, she wanted to practice a certain technique. I mean, so that was grand. So we picked a topic and we were going through it and she recorded it. But I also recorded it, I think it was using Airgram, I think. Um, so you get it scripted and same kind of thing. So I could look through, I can look back on what her questions were and kind of go, oh, yeah, that was a great question. I'm going to use that. Um, and it's something that I, at some point, I want to request clients if I can record the meeting to bring to my own, because I do supervision, to bring to my own supervisor and say, right, when looking back on this meeting, here is what I think of my performance as a coach the questions that I asked here's the silence that I left or um the person was talking about a topic that's close to my heart something that I've been through I think I was projecting my stuff on them see this bit here um how could I have handled this better or differently and how would I do that in the future so for performance evaluation <laughs> and like it's um, when I was a sales manager we would have done a lot of call shadowing and I know during COVID that moved to call a bit videoing like you know I think the AI scripts it and as you say pop in the keywords and, and you can zoom to the bit or it can summarize the bullet points that you're making or if you're practicing a speech like if I was going to give a presentation or do a speech there's one called Yodli which is great you can talk out loud to it and it gives you live feedback on your ums and your ahs and your tone of voice and your overuse of certain words yeah I'll send it through to you afterwards it's very good it's really very good I think what you're talking about in terms of like transcription, especially of coaching sessions is very interesting because also for the client, you know, if that client has done a number of sessions over say like even a number of years, there's probably been a topic that has come up multiple times. And 
And sure, they might have kept some notes along the way. But let's say like next year, you know, they're going into an interview again. It's their first interview in a few years. If they have these bank of transcriptions and they can just search for like interview prep and find everything that they've talked about from all the conversations they've had with coaches. And they're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Because if you're doing an hour long coaching session, you, you know, you remember some things, but a lot of it you forget because maybe right at that time, it wasn't what was super relevant. But then in the future, when that situation co- crops up, you're like, oh, I wish I had all my notes from one of these sessions that I did. Probably got a, a few more questions before we finish up, if that's okay. But there's one kind of big topic I want to talk about, which is like, you've worked with a lot of people who are going through different stages of their career, like you talked about. So it might be somebody dealing with redundancy, it might be looking somebody who's looking to kind of progress in their career or somebody who's looking to change entirely. This kind of podcast is... <laughs> kind of born out of the fact that I thought there was a lot of people in their 20s and 30s who ended up in in jobs that were fine. And they kind of did the university degree, got a good job, got promoted, and then were turning around and saying, Jesus, is this it? Like, is there, you know, this is great, but like, is there not something a bit more, something where I feel a bit more satisfaction? That's a conversation I've had with a lot of my friends and my colleagues over the past couple of years. But I'm interested to know, from your perspective, is that a theme that tends to come up? And if so, what do you think is driving that in people? Yeah, I suppose the first thing that comes up for me is what does great mean? You know, it comes down to the definition of great and what's great for us at age 21 or 22, fresh out of college, may not be great even at 26 or 27 a few years later, possibly not 10 years later. What we want out of a job and life changes and evolves and can do significantly. I think the opportunities that present themselves to us as well can either encourage us or frustrate us. So we see, so I know a lot of people that I've worked with in their 20s and 30s, there's a lot of peer comparison. That person is getting ahead more than me. But again, we're comparing that person's sizzle reel, 30 second sizzle reel, to our behind-the-scenes footage of every thought, action, behaviour, doubt (laughs) that we've ever had. And it's an unfair comparison. It's definitely not apples with oranges. And I think it is a bit tougher on people these days because there is so much exposure to jobs or opportunities in different countries, in different industries. People are more mobile with their career now. There's an article that I like... um, I think Microsoft wrote it around. It's a, it's no longer a career ladder. It's a career playground. So you swing over to the right and you go down, you go backwards, you go sideways, you go up rather than junior, mid, senior, more senior, more senior in the one company or the one industry. But uh, but we're, we have easy access to snippets of what others are doing in other places through social media, which is always the highlights and always the gloss. Or it's the redemption story. You know, it's the here is my worst moment and here's how I redeemed myself and came back up and came back around, which is tough on people. And it can, it can leave people feeling that they're missing out somehow or that it hasn't turned out the way that they envisaged. I think there's another piece around expectations as well. Are our expectations realistic? And maybe a tougher piece or a more challenging conversation around accountability. What are you doing that's holding yourself back or What are you expecting of others to enable you when, in fact, you're handing over the control to them when the control should be with you? What's an example of that? I'm interested in that part. 
I should be promoted. I've been here for two years. Something that came up a lot for me throughout my career in the past. Maybe there's an expectation or sometimes with some people an entitlement that tenure equals something. When in fact, it's about it's about skills and it's about attitude and it's about political nous, like knowing office politics and how it works and knowing that the world isn't fair. It's not fair that the world isn't fair, but it isn't fair. And sometimes the chips fall your way and sometimes they don't. And that's it. There's nothing more profound or fundamental or a bigger picture. It's a bit rubbish you didn't get promoted this time. In six months time, you possibly will if you keep doing this and if you add this. But just life isn't fair. And no, like sometimes things don't go our way and that's it. Um, and people can have a bad reaction to that. And be impatient, I think. Time, like... Six months or a year can feel very long when you're in your 20s and you're in early stage of your career. I'm really interested in what you're saying about the fact that, like, because you have so much more exposure to other people's careers and jobs, and also because it's gotten easier to switch jobs, does that lead to us kind of being less satisfied with the job that we're in because we're always, like, looking for something better whereas let's say we were in the exact same job but you know it was i don't know let's just say 20 years ago or something but we didn't have the inside and it was much more difficult for us to kind of change jobs and people tended tended to stay that we didn't ask ourselves these questions so we weren't always looking for the next best thing because you're like no this is this is where i am now so you learn to love it so i don't know like i'm kind of caught like is it a good thing or a bad thing because it seems like on one hand it's a really good thing that we should be able to jump around careers different careers much more often because that increases the likelihood that we find something good we don't get stuck in something crap but on the other hand it's like if we're always looking for somewhere where the grass is greener we could be in a job that's a nine out of ten but we don't see that because all we see is the job that's a nine and a half out of ten that we want to get into so I don't know. What do you think? Is it a net positive or net negative? I don't know if that's the right question. Like, if um, is it good? Is it good or bad? I guess it doesn't matter. It's reality. <laughs> yeah, but no, I think like having opportunity and the ability to move to other countries and move industries and have transferable skills, like they're like they're all they are all great things. I think even hit the nail on the head there when it's is comparison is the thief of joy. Is that the right? phrase is that an idea it's so true like it really is so true like faraway hills are greener because you're ne- you're never exposed to all the details and all the good things and all the bad bad things that go with another role or another job or another country or another partner or whatever it is i think you're right like it doesn't whether it's good or bad doesn't really matter it's the reality that we have to live in now where it's like it's better it's easier for us to move it's easier for us to change jobs but it's also never easier us to compare ourselves so we kind of need to find like happy balance where we know that we can move if we're not happy but at the same time we probably don't want to spend our whole lives looking for like the next best thing because then like we could be in a fantastic situation but we'd never actually like appreciate it right and that's not a nice place to be it's funny what's coming up for me here is like gratitude you know and um, i mean out of all the meditation yoga mindfulness gratitude journaling gratitude and journaling are the two that work for me the other is i can't do i never got gratitude to work for me for some reason i don't know why the way i did it i started during covid with two friends of mine and i was struggling as single kids job blah 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 and it was just i was in survival mode for so long 
And uh, we just used to text. We had a little text group, three of us. And we used to just text, not every day, because then there was just another thing to add to the to-do list. We just used to text what you were grateful for. And I loved seeing what they were grateful for, like super simple things. You know, didn't have to empty the dishwasher today. <laughs> or a kid achieving a milestone or, you know, was awake for the sunrise or had an hour to myself to walk on a beach or just like really, really simple things. And I remember thinking, God, this is so cool that my friends appreciate and notice and value really, really simple things that are totally achievable and are notable enough to write in a text (laughs) and add to the gratitude group. And it really, yeah, like it made me start going, like appreciating a nice cup of tea, like literally bringing it so right back down to basics. And then it was kind of, oh yeah, you know, the cracking day work today actually, or whatever. But I think again, doing it in the group and I have a big value of belonging, right? Belonging, community, um, collaboration, togetherness, all that. They're real strong values for me. So I think that doing it in a group, you know, even if it was through text, really kind of um, spoke to that value of belonging for me too. I'm, I'm quite interested in that because it's something I kind of think a lot about is like that idea of like belonging and, and community. Um, like what I'm interested to hear that it's such a big thing for you. Like, what does that mean for you? Yeah, God, just I think again with COVID, I just I think I realised that I like a simple life. You know, like I've done a lot of backpacking. I've visited a lot of countries. I've lived in different places. You know, I've worked in great places. Done just done lots of stuff. I've been busy and been all around the place. And now I'm like really happy in my Southside Dublin suburb, <laughs> my mid terrace three bedroom house. Very ordinary and very normal, and I like being near parks and near the mountains and twenty minutes from the sea, and lovely coffee cabin with friendly lads nearby and neighbours who walk the dogs and people pushing buggies and friendly neighbours who give me a dig out uh, when I need it and just uh, like part of the local GA club, like just really super super simple middle aged stuff suburban stuff that I never that my 20 year old self would never have thought that I'd be delighted with probably disgusted by that idea (laughs) like you know like the ordinariness of it I'm like fucking love being ordinary like really I really really love being simple and being ordinary now (laughs) like you know and it's something I think in my 50s I'm gonna get back to being adventurous (laughs) but right now this really suits me and I think when I've simplified down life, you can find things to belong to easier, slower pace. I'm really interested in that. Even my own experience this year is like, I kind of went on this mad trip at the start of the year. I spent four months like living out of my car and driving across Australia. And it was great. It was really cool. I, I definitely enjoyed it. But like for the last four months, I've just been back in Sydney doing very ordinary stuff and it's been unreal. It's been so nice. Like, and I know like Sydney is also like a pretty amazing place to be. Right. So it's not like boring normal, but like, that's actually the kind of stuff that I've, I've just found so much joy in going to the same coffee shop every day. It's weird. Like, but it's something very, very nice about it. Like I lived in New Zealand for four years, I think, and loved it. Like loved that country. Can't wait to go back. But I found the expat life very transient, you know, like you, because I, I went there on my own. I literally had two phone numbers in my pocket, two friends of friends that I never met. 
got lost in Bali along the way for six months as you do, like doing yoga and surfing and blah, blah, blah. And that was very, that was very transient as well. So there was a friend from university there and my best friend from home was living in Bangkok. So there was, you know, a bit of connection to home and stability and all that too. But I found what I really got sick of towards the end of New Zealand was like you make friends with people, generally other expats, and they come and go or they leave or go to a different town. And then you build up another friendship and you, you, it's, it can be difficult to get beyond the surface of, yeah, let's go camping this weekend or let's go out or come around for a barbecue, which is all great. But like when you're lonely and you're homesick or work isn't going well or something's gone wrong, really wrong, and you're like, oh, I just want to talk to someone who's known me for 20 years um, or who will know me for 20 years. You know, I just, I, I find the transient nature of the expat life kind of got to me and it sounds cool and sexy and it is cool to be a digital nomad and do the backpacking and do the traveling, but um, it served its purpose and then I wanted something different. So I chose something different. I came. Yeah, I, I get that. And I think like the more I kind of learn about friendship or experience it, I realize it's really a function of time more than anything else. Like, obviously, you need to, like, fit with that person from, like, a values perspective. But it's just, like, if you've known somebody for 20 years, right, like, you have a really deep connection to them. And there's something very, very strong about that. And it's, like, if you meet somebody and, like, you could be a perfect fit with them. But if you've only known them for six months and you know they're moving away in six months, like, there's just something different about it. And it just doesn't – it serves, like, a different purpose, like, in terms of um, a relationship with that person. And it's made me think a lot about – how I choose like where to live because I moved to Australia four years ago I think at that point I probably thought I'd move around loads I thought maybe I'd live in Sydney for a few years and I might move to Melbourne or maybe I'd go at one point I wanted to live in the States or I kind of thought that I would like hop around over the next like decade whereas like now that's not I think basically I'll either stay here or at some point I may move home I find it very difficult to think about moving to like any other place other than those two because I realized that it takes time to build connection to a place and to build relationships in that place and that they are actually really really important like you can go on holidays somewhere and that's great but if you actually want to live somewhere and have people around you that you're connected with that just takes time so I'm much more conscious now about like I wouldn't just move somewhere for a year I don't think you know that doesn't really appeal to me anymore I've got one more question before we finish up so actually I'll, I'll do two two quick ones so if you were to go back and sit down with yourself from let's say five years ago kid number one has arrived <laughs> kid number two perhaps on the way and you were sit down and have a conversation with yourself from those five years ago what is it that you'd say to yourself well on the theme of friendship i'd say you've got a bloody good group of friends and you still have that bloody good group of friends i think yeah you're like you're going to be fine you're going to be fine because I think so probably five years ago, yeah, my first kid would have been one. So I was still like learning how to be a parent. Like that was that was the I suppose I would have just gone through the first maternity leave. So it was all focus on the baby and I was returning to work. Then you're like, uh, how do you juggle the two? And I think I would have said to myself, I tell myself like parenting feels hard because it is hard. It's fucking hard. <laughs> and there's loads of different theories and books and versions of how to be a parent out there. And you need to choose your philosophy and kid doesn't do what the book says it will do and it's it's very emotional and that I'm doing a great job even on the days that you think you're doing a rubbish job I'm doing a great job or a good job a good enough job good enough job kid just needs one good adult you know I'm, I'm that one good adult 
And I'd say going back to work, I would say, yeah, don't, you know, don't get consumed into motherhood and sacrifice career too much. Like I remember there was a conference in New York and I was like, oh God, New York for three nights. Are you kidding me? Like, oh, what's going to happen? And I was so glad to go. I was like, no man, no man is going, oh my God, I can't leave my one-year-old at home and go to New York. Poor bit. Like literally. <laughs> Why was I? Like, where did that come from? It's so socially ingrained in us. Like society expects it of us. We expect it of ourselves, other women, family, like baby will be fine. It's got two parents. And, you know, yes, I Mothers tend to know the baby better because of long maternity leaves, which are great for baby and the best start in life. But it upsets the um, balance of labor in the house and who's better at childcare and who's more used to doing the household stuff. And that is really what I kind of can set parents, women, parents, mothers back in, in the workplace because you have to undo all those patterns that have been established. So I would have said, yeah, absolutely. Go to New York, have a great time and keep going with the career. Like I'd have, I'd have, I'd have, good year I mean that year in between the two mat leaves I remember having a good year in work that year I just kept going and actually I do remember actually going into those this big project that I was doing and walking into a boardroom and there's loads of senior execs and I was heavily pregnant I was about eight months pregnant and I remember the blue dress I had on me and I waddled up and sat down and confidently presented and nobody mentioned anything nobody said congratulations nobody mentioned the bump and I was delighted I was just a woman doing a job and it was completely incidental that I was heavily pregnant and I did did a great job. And I remember feeling really empowered. And going, God, I'd love it for the women to be like this. What am I saying? What's the summary? Keep doing what you're doing, you're doing great. <laughs> and and if we assuming if we flipped it, right? And if we looked forward five years, and let's just say, you know, this podcast is still going in five years' time and you agree to come back on as a guest and we sit down and Claire, you said to me, so even like the, the last five years have been unreal. Like they've been so good. I can't believe how good they've been. What is it that you think would have happened during those five years? I'd have kept remembering that I am brave and courageous because I've never characterized myself as a brave and courageous person. But I've moved to a country on the other side of the world on my own. I've left jobs five times with no other job to go to. You know, I'm I'm the breadwinner. Like the kids are with me most time. Like I've started my own business out of nothing. Learned the skills that I'm that I'm brave and I'm still doing hard things and mostly getting them right and sometimes getting them wrong and that's fine. I think I would like to have when it comes to the kids and the family. I'd like to have uh, Jesus an eleven year old and a nine year old who are confident, kind, empathetic, like fun loving comfortable in their own skin and that they've found like kind of interests and passions, be it sport or chess or whatever, whatever, Lego, whatever it is. They have a strong network of friends, like that they've got friends that will go back to their early childhood through to their kind of senior school and, and university and that they're, they're achieving to the best of their abilities in school. Like I think I'll always have an emphasis on education, but it's got to be to the best of your ability, you know. And that they know how to empty a dishwasher. <laughs> and they'd sleep through the bloody night. Oh my God. <laughs> Hopefully in five years, you know, somebody's developed an AI that's going to empty the dishwasher for us because that and hanging out the clothes, right? If they've got those two things down, they need to forget about a lot of this, you know, chat GPT and focus on the real problems, I reckon. From a work point of view, um, I'd like to still be coaching. I'd like to still be doing private one-to-one work. I find it really enjoyable. 
I'd like to have expanded into doing like group coaching um, or getting into maybe training so I can scratch that teaching kind of itch. And yes, and get out of my home office a bit more and get into other workplaces, like whether that's to see clients or whether that's that I'm working with another company part time, like doing this part time and uh, having some sort of contract or partnership or part time job elsewhere. But doing the coaching, I'm really enjoying it and getting good feedback, which always feels great. Excellent. That's very good. I guess it's probably a good point then to see if uh, if people wanted to kind of find you online or learn more about like your business or are you like where's the best place for them to go and check out yeah sure um i have a website it's clairecarol-coaching.com i know that's not a good url um or you can find me on linkedin under claire carol on linkedin as well claire thanks so much i really really enjoyed this conversation Stephen, thanks a lot it's great to chat to you I hope you enjoyed that conversation that I just had with Claire and maybe you took something from it and you found it helpful. If you did enjoy it, um, please share it with a friend. If you think somebody might find this interesting or helpful, if they're going through a period of trying to figure out what it is that they want to do, if they've maybe recently been made redundant, um, do share it. It's really, it helps the pod to grow. Um, and hopefully it helps that person too. If you want more of this kind of content, follow me on socials on LinkedIn. You can get me on my personal profile, Steve Duke. And on Instagram, you can find me at Two Roads Pod. But apart from that, I will see you next week for episode 30 of the Two Roads Podcast.